So I thought about doing maybe like a year-end sermon and kind of something reviewing the, the state of the church and so forth, or looking at the country, but uh, God just put a passage of Scripture in my heart, and so I just want to go through a simple passage of Scripture and have a short exhortational sermon related to this. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter number 4. And uh, I'm just going to run through a short passage and just kind of draw out some of the principles that Paul is emphasizing here to the Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you'd like to stand up, we'll read together here. Verse number 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, the Apostle Paul writing, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, But concerning brotherly love, we have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful, Father, for your goodness to us. And we lift this service up to you. We thank you for, we're thankful for those that are here today, Lord, those even that are battling sickness and have come. Father, I pray you get everyone healthy. And as we look to the new year, Father, give us vision, Father, for our lives, direction, for the ministry that you've called each one of us to do. And uh, Father, and also as a, cop- as a congregation corporately, as we minister in this community, Father. And I pray that you would speak to us as Christian people this morning. And uh, fill our hearts with, uh, indeed, an increase of your love and uh, love for others, that we might walk worthy of the calling of Christian. And so, Father, I pray your spirit would speak through me this morning, and may you touch the lives of each one that are here, and may we grow as better Christians as a result. I pray this in Jesus' name. And uh, lastly, we'd also just lift up to you, Rusty and the family again, Lord, just be with them right now in their state of heartbrokenness, Father, and, uh, and others who have lost close family, the Deaning family down in Chicago, having a memorial service for the mother today. Um, for those, Marlissa and Crispin lost their little Silas at 20 weeks. For others, Lord, grieving the loss of, of, of a loved one, Father, we pray you'd comfort them during this time. And, uh, Father, as we close down the year, give us thoughtful reflection on our lives. And may we look to this new year to accomplish great things for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, a simple command here Paul gives to the Thessalonians. And he tells them, I don't really need to command you to love one another because you already know that. But I want to encourage you to increase more and more in your love for each other and for those around you. And then he gives some practical application of that. And of course, the, the, the whole second half of the book of First Thessalonians is practical application of, of what love looks like for Christians. And so we're just going to delve into it a little bit and look at this chapter. And uh, the book of Thessalonians was probably Paul's earliest book. We read of Paul's travel to Thessalonica in the book of Acts chapter 17 just a few months ago when I did a sermon out of Acts chapter 17. And uh, Paul, prior to going to Athens, as you remember, we kind of planted ourselves in Athens and went through Paul being stirred with the idolatry that he saw in Athens. And he gets up and begins to preach and contend for the gospel. In Athens, as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him, and the reason why he had parted ways with Silas and Timothy is that 
Paul was running into problems with Jews who were harassing them, persecuting them, and starting riots and beatings and uh, tremendous persecution such that Paul had to leave. And so uh, Thessalonica was where that began. And you can read in Acts chapter 17 as Paul, traveling with, with Timothy and Silas, goes into Thessalonica and he begins to go into the synagogues and he's preaching and reasoning from the Scriptures. And these Jews are stirred as they're seeing people converted. They're seeing people persuaded. They're seeing the truth of what Paul is saying, grip hearts. And so they are stirred, and these Jews rise up against Paul. They drive him out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes to other places and winds up in Athens. And that's all recorded in Acts 17. And so at some point, Paul sends Timothy and Silas back to Thessalonica. We read about it in the previous chapter, chapter 3. Paul speaks of uh, Timothy reporting to him good things about the Thessalonians. That, uh, that he received a good report from Paul in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you, you brought us good, and has brought us good news of your faith and your love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also desire to see you. And so, uh, so Paul has a close personal connection to the folks there in Thessalonica. It's a young, growing church. Timothy, as I said, has gone back and has been ministering there to them and has come back to Paul wherever Paul is writing this letter from, probably Corinth, and has, is, um, is a good, has a good report that things are growing there. Things are doing well. They are increasing in faith and love and godliness, and the church is doing well. They're thriving. And so Paul writes the first letter of Thessalonians, and a short time after that writes the second letter to the Thessalonians, giving them instruction and encouragement. And uh, <clears throat> probably his earliest book, this is probably written around 50 A.D., this in Galatians, probably Paul's two earliest writings, both right around 50 A.D. And so probably just within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, and uh, as the, the early church is going through this transition from Judaism to the coming of the Messiah, fulfilling all of the, 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 the covenants of Israel being fulfilled in the coming of Christ, Christ coming and declaring and announcing His kingdom is here, doing great signs and wonders and works, him being crucified in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah who would suffer, and then Jesus rising from the dead, establishing his church, the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and them going out into all the world, preaching the gospel, of course, to the Jew first. As there is this transition period, the first generation, we see the Jews are being sifted. Some receive, many receive, many reject, and then judgment comes upon Israel in 70 A.D., and there is this massive annihilation of Jerusalem, In 70 A.D., as the Romans come in and they wreak havoc upon the Jews, Judaism, as we had known it, was annihilated, never to be seen, practiced in that way again. Judaism essentially was over in the way that it had been practiced. The temple was destroyed and they were scattered. And so this marks the the, the era of what I would say is the New Covenant. I would say that is what this church teaches and believes was the end times. The Bible speaks of it was the end of the Old Covenant, the end of that age, the end of... Judaism, as it was practiced in the ushering in of the New Covenant. And we've been living living now under the advancement of the kingdom of God. As Jesus said, his kingdom would start out as the smallest seed, but would become the biggest tree. The birds of the air would come and take refuge upon it. And so for 2,000 years we have watched the church of Jesus Christ grow and expand throughout the earth, converting nations. And even now, as we see our nation descending into a spiritual and moral abyss, we see the gospel advancing Millions coming to Christ all over the world. Amen? 
And so we may be living in the end times of America, but we're not living in the end times. We are living in a time when the gospel is going forward, changing hearts and minds. Amen. As uh, there's spiritual war going on. We just read of Christians in Nigeria being slaughtered. Christians in uh, in what other country was it? Kenya, where the Muslims slaughtered a whole group of Christians as well on Christmas Day. And they're doing this because Muslims are converting by the millions in these regions. Africa is seeing tremendous growth with Christianity. So is Asia. South America, Christianity is expanding. Thank God. Amen. It's dying in Europe, dying here in America in many ways. But uh, the gospel is not going to be defeated. And we can take comfort in that no matter what. Those who rule in the wickedness that we see about us, uh, what they are scheming, Nonetheless, God is still on his throne. Amen. So we can rejoice in that. And it's not an excuse to sit back and be idle. Right? But that should motivate us to fight. And so, praise God. So, Paul gives us instruction to the Thessalonians here, a very simple command, which is the heart of the Christian life. At the heart of Christian ethics, Christian morality, is this idea of love, biblical love. He says in verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Amen. And this has been, of course, was a commandment of the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this in the book of Matthew, that this is the greatest commandment. In fact, the two great commandments upon which the whole of the law of God hangs. All the law and prophets hang on this commandment, that you love God with all your heart. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. And he said the two, the second is like the first. Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 12 by saying that he that loves his neighbor will not violate the law. The law is fulfilled in this one word that you love your neighbor as yourself. For he that loves his neighbor will not commit adultery, will not steal, will not lie, will not cheat. Right? There is a perfecting of our hearts that comes through love. And though we live in a time where love is horrifically distorted, it has been reduced to a mere emotion. As we see... Everybody from rappers and pop artists to strippers and prostitutes talking about the importance of love. The fact is, many in our culture don't know what love is. They have no conception. Many people are raised, if not the majority of people now, raised in homes where the kind of sacrificial love that should be the pillar of healthy society is absent. As moms and dads do not sacrifice for their kids, but rather sacrifice their children in the altars of convenience whether they are aborting them, abandoning them, neglecting them, or just passing them off for somebody else to raise and to take care of. We have a fatherless culture. And so love is the defining ethic of Christianity. And it should be the defining ethic of your life. At the heart of love is this notion that we are not living for ourselves. That the world does not revolve around us. Right? I have to remind my kids of this all the time. When the kids start complaining about things and start demanding things, I say, well, that would be fine. I would do that for you if the world revolved around you. Right? But the world doesn't revolve around you. Right? Our kids need this reminder. We as adults need that reminder. The world does not revolve around us as much as we would like it to. And the vast majority of problems that we see in our world from big to small ultimately go back to this one thing, a rejection of true biblical love. It's selfishness. The antithesis of love is not always hatred. The antithesis of love is selfishness. Selfishness. And we are a self-centered culture. And sadly, Christmas time is one of the times when it is highlighted more pronounced than any other time in the world. 
my brother and I were just discussing. My, my brother's here. This is my brother Matt from New York. And we were just discussing this morning about the debt, the national debt and the global debt and the amount of debt that was produced in this country just this last month is a staggering. People spending money they don't have. I've got to have this thing. I've got to have this. And of course, a lot of our, our, our good altruistic inclinations are manipulated during Christmas because we're buying things for other people. Right? Well, you don't have money to buy that. Why are you buying that? Because I feel guilty. I didn't get them something. I ought to buy them something really nice. I don't want them to think ill of me if I don't buy them something really nice. So I got to buy this extra thing. And well, that thing's on sale and buy this. And it's unbelievable to see what people are spending during Christmas. I mean, the kids that are just spoiled to the bone and they have no appreciation whatsoever. Toys they're never even going to play with. Toys that won't even be taken out of a package are going to wind up in a garage sale two years from now. And parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles are putting this on credit cards. Self-centeredness. The demand for constant things. The demand for constant comfort. The demand for constant pleasure. The assumption that I deserve to be always happy. The assumption that I always deserve to be comfortable. That is a lie. And we're one of the only cultures in the history of the world that's ever even had the luxury to even be able to think that that's a possibility. Because for most of human history, suffering was just the norm. Adversity was just the norm. Being a human meant you overcame adversity. Being a human being and growing into a responsible, mature adult meant that you overcame adversity. You didn't complain about things. And so this is at the heart of Christian virtue. That we deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We follow Him. Right? That we live lives characterized by selflessness, by giving of ourselves towards others. This must be what guides our life, our character, our decision making. There's nothing that's more ugly than a professing Christian, a loud professing Christian who is full of themselves. One of the most ugly, disturbing, contradictory things that brings so much reproach on the name of Christ. Jesus said, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. By what? By the love that you have one for another. That's how the world will know that you are my disciples. Not by the theological positions you take. Not by your complex doctrinal creeds that you subscribe to. Though those things have a place. Not by the things you preach against. It's by the love that you have one for another. Selflessness. This, 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 this is tested in a thousand and one ways every day in our lives. From little small decisions we make, whether to get angry and irritated, get in a bad mood, be nasty and grumpy to those around us, to cut somebody off on the roadway, to, to big decisions we make. The kinds of decisions that wreck families, that destroy ministries, that tear apart businesses. Biblical love is simply this. It's care and concern for the best interests of another. Care and concern for the best interests of another. When you're in a situation, is your default, your default decision-making process, what's best for me? What's in it for me? How do I benefit? That's not biblical love. Our default 
I'm not saying we let people walk all over us and that we just are foolish, you know. I'm not saying every homeless guy that asks you money, you break out your wallet and give them all that's in your money. We have to be discerning, we have to be wise, we have to actually understand what is actually in people's best interests, right? More often than not, giving a homeless person money is not in their best interests. Now maybe buying them a meal, sitting down, talking to them, praying with them, that could be. Investing in their life, that could be. But giving them five bucks and driving away and feeling like you did your duty is probably not. Telling them this passage right here where Paul says, hey, how about you work with your own hands? That would be good. Um, but so we need love is discerning. Love is not blind. Right? Love should not be the kind of thing that so many preach it in our culture today where we have Christians standing in pulpits saying we're not going to talk about abortion. We're not going to talk about things like homosexuality because we want it to be loving like Jesus. No, love demands we speak truth. Love demands that as shepherds we protect sheep. Amen. Love demands that we expose and confront those who are seeking to seduce and to hurt those in our community. Right? And so we preach against homosexuality, we preach against abortion, we preach against these evils in our society, not because we're obsessed with other people's bedrooms, as they would say, but because we see the destruction that this perversion brings on our culture, and we see the lives that are absolutely devastated by thinking it was just, it was just a little fun. And many of us lived it, right? My brother and I have had a lot of time to reflect and talk about our lives and thinking about our broken upbringing. And our mom and dad were teenagers who had both of us and didn't know how to take care of children. They were products of the 70s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture. Hey, just have fun. Just have fun. Don't let people judge you. Don't let these old people tell you what you can't listen to and shouldn't be. Man, be free. Be liberated. Do what makes you feel good, right? That was the cry of the 50s and 60s. That was the cry of our culture. And look what it has unleashed. The most drug-addicted, suicidal, violent generation in our nation's history. Half the kids growing up in our culture are either medicated or willfully on drugs doing drugs. Suicide rates are off the charts. There are consequences to our actions. And the perversion or a confusion about what love is will lead to a whole lot of destruction. At the center of family, at the center of our relationships ought to be selflessness, a commitment for the best interests of others ahead of ourselves. And when that is the glue that holds families together, right? Children are raised with that kind of love. They know know that they're committed to. They know that their mom and dad will sacrifice for them. And they learn how to emulate that behavior. They learn compassion. They learn justice. They learn goodness, kindness, courage. And those are the things that ought to compel us to fight. Amen? Those are things worth fighting for. And as that breaks down, everything in society will indeed break down. And so Paul gives this exhortation to the Thessalonians here. That your love would increase more and more. Amen? And so that's my prayer for this congregation. That's my prayer for your families. Whether you're living in the midst of a broken family whether you don't know and are alienated from many of the members of your immediate family or whether you are growing up in a big Christian home. 
It's my prayer that your love would increase for those around you. And that those who see you would see somebody whose life is characterized by love, by biblical, godly love. So in this chapter, Paul gives these, these practical implications, and it's not, it shouldn't shock us then that prior to this passage where Paul speaks of love, the whole prior part, portion of this chapter is all about sexual purity. If we go back to chapter 4, the beginning of the chapter, go back nine verses, in 1 Thessalonians 4, <clears throat> Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Exhorting them faith, that their faith and love will continue to increase. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us unto uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Amen. And then he flows right into the passage we read. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. So there's a contrasting of brotherly love, true godly love, true selfless love, contrasted with lust, sexual Unbridled sexual passion. And sadly, <clears throat> sadly, we live in a culture that is sexually broken, tremendously sexualized. The 1950s marked a major transformation in our culture. How many of you know that? <clears throat> the 60s is where we see sort of the watershed takes place, but really the 50s. The post-World War II era. Hollywood had already been attempting to seduce our country for, for 40 years. The radio was actively seducing hearts and minds. But America, for the most part, was resilient. You had pockets of perversion where lots of things were practiced. Um, but the majority of these things were not publicly acceptable in most of the country. But after World War II, with our increased prosperity, we came back from World War II as this global superpower. And we had the building of the suburbs, suburbia, where everybody has a nice little white picket fence and everybody's nice and comfortable. And this was when it became normal. Two things became normal at that time. One is that most young people began to attend high school. So kids at 13, 14 years old, rather than entering the adult world, at the time when their hormones and their bodies changing and telling them that they're ready to enter the adult world, right? They were suddenly stuck in this classroom for the next four years of their life where they couldn't actually integrate into the adult world, where they had to pass the little test, stand in a little line, and be grouped into people that were exactly the same age as them, exactly the same immaturity as them, or worse. And, of course, where boys, boys were stuck sitting next to girls, uh, you know. And so, of course, Chuck Berry's song, School Days, articulates this well, right, where the, the whole song is about him being stuck in school and hating it and he can't wait till he can get out and go make romance and dance with the girls in his class, right? And rock and roll, of course, is what is hail. There's literally the line, hail, hail, rock and roll. Feeling that from the head to the toe, blah, 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 all that sexual passion, sexual energy. And so, 1950s, you know, that, that stuff wouldn't have sold to adults. 
the music of the 50s, you know, would not have become popular with the average adult because the average adult would have seen it for what it was. It was childish, foolish nonsense. But the 1950s marked a time when a youth market emerged where these young people who are not allowed to really grow up and act like adults, weren't expected to actually totally be adults, were stuck in this limbo stage of adolescence and high school, but had all the raging passions. They suddenly had automobiles, leisure time, and leisure money. And so this whole market emerged, a youth market, selling music, selling entertainment to kids who were not under their parental, their parents' supervision, who were of an age that could be manipulated. They had the time, the money, the leisure. And so there was this massive exploitation in the 1950s of our, of our youth. And it blindsided American families. Fathers were out working, they would come home, and what in the world is happening to my kids? And so the 60s was when the dam broke and the nation was turned upside down. Crime and violence doubled that decade in this country. And now here we are with abortion, homosexuality, transgendered insanity. They just passed a law. Somebody had a nice meme on Facebook that they just raised the smoking age in some state to 21. You can't smoke till you're 21. But they will perform gender reidentification hormonal treatments on an 8-year-old in that state and do full-on gender surgery at 12 years old in that state with or without parental consent. If a doctor and school administrators feel that the kid needs it, they can do it against the wishes of the parents in that state. So you, you can't smoke a cigarette. Don't buy a cigarette till you're 21. But if you want gender hormone surgery, we'll do it for you for free. That's the insanity that this country is under right now. The delusion of what 50, 60 plus years of sexual perversion, the Dionysus spirit unleashed upon our culture has done. And so there's nothing new under the sun. The Jeffrey Epsteins of the world, the, 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 the pedophilia that is emerging in our culture that will be normative in 10 years, the discussions we're having about transgenderism now, we will be having about pedophilia 10 years from now. Absolutely. Or less. In some circles, it's already happening. And many of us have been saying it for multiple decades now simply by looking at the trajectory our nation is on. And it's, it's because we're not reaching some new era of liberation where we are headed is simply back to our pagan roots. Pedophilia was normal in the ancient world. Christianity is what purged the practice of pedophilia from the civilized world. And as we abandon Christianity, throw off the restraints of Christianity, we will go back to our pagan roots. Child sacrifice, pedophilia... Rampant perversions of all kind, bizarre occultic behaviors. America has not become any less religious or any less spiritual as we've kicked off Christianity. The occult, the rise of horror films, this obsession with horror films, bizarre, creepy nonsense, the fascination with paranormal activity. This stuff is so rampant in the lives of young people today. I mean, you can go to city after city after city in this country and find thousands and thousands of young people who've never opened a Bible, don't know a Bible verse, but they've dabbled in all sorts of occultic activity, obsessed with horror films and perverse behaviors, sexually all sorts of insanity, porn addicted at 13, 14, 15 years old. I've seen the most perverse kinds of sexual orgies at 13, 14, 15 years old. That's normal. It's normal for them and all their friends and their entire school. 
but they've never opened a Bible. Right here in America. Millions of kids. And so we are self-destructing. And so Paul was on the other end of it. Paul was at a time where that was normal in his day. That was normal in the Greco-Roman world. Whereas he traveled from city to city, he'd have seen the same things. Probably much worse. And so he was calling people out of that. Trying to build the seeds of the remnants of a little church that would be the transforming agent to transform that entire Roman Empire. And so that's the place that we sit in today. That's where we sit in today. We are this remnant that God has preserved. Though flawed as each of us may be, though damaged and dirty as each of us may be by this culture, we are this remnant that God has preserved to be the transforming agent in this world. If we will have the courage to speak, to sanctify ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to walk in the kind of godly, biblical love and self-denial that Paul speaks of and let God use us and fill us with his Holy Spirit, we can still yet be the transforming agents in our culture. And there are millions of young people waiting for Christians to speak. Amen? So Paul says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Amen? That's my prayer, that your love would increase. True, godly, sanctifying love. Amen? And may that be a bulwark against where the enemy is attacking in our world today. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts and minds of those that are here. And God, as we uh, endeavor to live faithfully to you, God, may we be, be men and women whose lives are characterized by discipline. Disciplined by the Spirit, motivated by love. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify each one that's here, Father. Transform our character, God. Make us more holy. Make us more kind, more patient. Even as Ben prayed earlier, that we would be more patient as men to lead our homes. That we would be displaying greater and greater the image of Christ in our lives. To the world, to our families, in our workplaces. That people would see Christ in our character. That our light would shine and draw people to you. And so, Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to prepare ourselves for communion. Strange time to be growing up, isn't it? <clears throat> you know, I actually feel sorry for a lot of the millennials. There's all the jokes about millennials and this and that, but uh, <coughs> millennials, millennials are victims. I mean, it, really, they are. Not in the ways they often want to portray themselves as, you know, that they didn't get enough free health care or whatever. But um, they've been victimized by this massive machine of seduction, these massive institutions of power that prey upon and pervert the minds of the young and the impressionable and the vulnerable. And they've been victimized by it. We've all been victimized by it, right? There's not a person here who hasn't been scarred by the perversions of this culture. So it's a tough time to be growing up, a tough time to be raising children. That's why we need the body of Christ. Amen.
But we're going to take communion. <clears throat> Paul says here in, um, i got to flip there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, speaks of communion as a, as a regular practice of the early church. And so we also do it here in Mercy Seat. Every Sunday we take communion, whether we want to call it a sacrament or, or a symbol or a practice. We do it as a, as a remembrance of what Christ has done for us and what salvation is all about. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. <clears throat> and so we do this to proclaim the Lord's death, but not just his death, his resurrection, and the life that he gives us. And so we see here just these two elements, his body, his blood, and that is the salvation that he has given us. It is not based on our good work. Our salvation, our right standing with God is attained through the merits and the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. Not through our righteousness. We contribute nothing to it. And so we ought to be filled with gratitude and love, amen, that he has indeed done this for us. And it also should fill us with humility, patience with others, and recognizing that they are justified before God in the same way. And that if God receives them as brothers, then so ought we. And so, if the Holy Spirit is fellowshipping with somebody, I don't think you're more holy than the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to be patient and long-suffering with our brothers, even those that we believe to be an heir. Amen. And so this reminds us of all of that. Reminds us of our salvation, how we obtain our salvation. Reminds us of our frailty, our sinfulness before God, and our, our utter dependence upon Him. It reminds us of our, of our need to have that kind of selfless love that Jesus showed for those around us. Amen. And so we are thankful. So let us eat and let us partake <clears throat> together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We bow our hearts one more time to pray, Lord, and just to give you thanks. For the salvation you give us, I pray that each person here would be strengthened as we come to you for cleansing, as we endeavor to to go out of this building and walk in holiness before you, ever dependent upon your spirit, Lord. Strengthen those that are here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.